Now, if you're looking for the results of the last episode, then you'll find them on our separate Express Results Bulletin, which has already been published. So off you pop if you want to do that first. For everyone else, I'm here with Nick. Hello. And Trev. Hello there. To look at six singles, which were number one in the charts. Yes, the Magic Randomizer has finally thrown us a number one. Number one on the day of recording, 16th of February, in years ending in zero. So that's stretching from 1960 all the way through to 2010. If you can't access the links to our playlists in the show info for the episode, which is certainly the case if you're on iTunes, here are the URLs for you. tinyurl.com forward slash which decade eight. That's a number eight. That gives you the YouTube playlist. Want the Spotify playlist? Add an S for Spotify on the end of the eight. If you want the extra tracks and bonus bits playlist, add an E for extras onto the end of the eight. Right. Without further ado, let's crack on with The Sixties with Why by Anthony Newley. This was the first of two consecutive number ones for Anthony Newley in 1960. Do You Mind also reached the top in May. Why was replaced at the top by Adam Faith's Poor Me. It spent four weeks at number one. Altogether, Anthony Newley had seven top ten hits between 1959 and 1961. As well as a singer, he was also an actor, a filmmaker and a songwriter. But although he was a songwriter, he didn't write Why. This was a cover of a 1959 US number one hit for Frankie Avalon. And it was subsequently also a number three hit in 1972 for Donny Osmond. I feel like I should do the whole of this thing in an Antididuli voice. <laughs> um, very difficult to know where to start with this. I don't even know what genre it is. It's the sort of thing that would have turned up in the immediate aftermath of the Mike Flowers Pops Wonderwall. There was an easy listening boom and everybody got into Andy Williams uh, all of a sudden and all of that sort of thing. And it feels to me it's the sort of thing that would appear on one of those compilations like, what kind of fool am I? Um, that sort of thing. So it's very difficult to know where to start. So I, I listened to it a couple of times and I thought, right, it's tinkly 50s music, isn't it? So I thought, well, I'll tell you what, let me go. I'll, I'll go and listen to the rest of the top 10 in the week that this was out. So I went to listen to the rest of the top 10. And it is all exactly this. For a start, it's all men. Not a woman to be seen in the top 10 in 1960. It's all this. Cliff Richard, Freddie Cannon, Adam Faith, Michael Holiday, Craig Douglas, Emil Ford and the Checkmates, Bobby Darin, Guy Mitchell, right? It is just wall to wall. Somewhere beyond the clouds for, for half an hour. <laughs> it was just It was just exactly the same. We've talked a lot about, you know, we didn't live through the 60s and how exciting it must have been. But the change that happened from this to the Beatles and everything that came after is absolutely stratospheric. It's almost like the two totally different things. And I just it's so weird that in the space of two or three years, you go from this, you know, lounge bar nonsense to bands, guitars and all that sort of thing. So. Don't mind a bit of easy listening. This is not the sort of thing that I particularly like. He was probably more successful as a songwriter. I mean, you know, for my James Bond obsession, he co-wrote Goldfinger, which is probably his crowning 
achievement. He wrote a few things with Leslie Brickers. He ended up being nominated for an Oscar for writing the uh, World of Pure Imagination song from uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So he ended up writing some quite good stuff. He wrote Feeling Good. You know, the Nina Simone Muse, I think, did that later on. So he's got a decent back catalogue. I just, you know, went on Spotify, listened to This is Anthony Newley. And after about, I don't know, it wasn't long before I had to turn it off as it was just, we t- used the word beige already, incredibly beige. So, I mean, it's fine if you like that sort of thing. Interesting that you mentioned that the top 10 of this week in 1960 was all male. Two weeks ago, the top five UK civil charts was actually all female. And um, it's actually one of the best top fives I've had in a very long time indeed. It's strange how these things move around. Uh, yeah, um, quite a lot of the 60s. I think we've all been nostalgic for, and I've found myself regretting missing the 60s with a lot of the songs that have come around. But this, for me, is also, it's too far in the twee territory free for me nick says tinkling i describe it as twinkling because i think it's a pleasant enough sound it twinkles and sparkles and i kind of think this would actually be better as a christmas song because it's got that kind of christmasy sound to it you know it sounds like snow falling christmas is as kitsch as hell anyway so i'd be more on board with it it's pleasant enough gentle stuff but it's too pleasant and gentle for me i mean maybe that speaks volumes about how our society is failing in that i can't just like something that's pleasant and gentle i want something that's got drugs and psychological problems in there for me to enjoy it (laughs) on youtube someone called leslie may said that he sang this song outside his girlfriend's window to her and a crowd formed and clapped him when he finished his performance and it was the best night that he'd ever had. And, you know, whilst for me that story sounds slightly too good to be true, uh, I kind of feel that way about the song. It's, you know, it's just pure love and I sort of think that is too good to be true but you know the end of it i'm not sad that i heard the song i just wouldn't go out my way to hear it again it also loses half a mark because it doesn't have a question mark in the title it's just why why carly simon's why didn't have a question mark in it either but bronski beats why did have a question mark in the title I hope I've not preempted your usual thing here, Nick. Which one's the one that goes, why? Uh, Annie Lennox. Is that called why? Yeah. Honestly, I thought at this point, Nick was going to say, would you like to know all the songs that are charted just with the word why? But we've done it for you, Nick. It was also why by discharge, which is like proto grindcore. That's really good. Um, I'm going to start my observations with a side note, uh, because I once sold an Anthony Newley single to Danny Baker. Danny Baker is a big Anthony Newley fan. And it was a promo single called The Good Old Bad Old Days. And because the great Danny Baker was buying it, I thought, well, I want to find out what's so special about this one then. Turns out The Good Old Bad Old Days is a title song from a 1972 musical that Anthony Newley co-wrote and he starred in. And I found on YouTube a TV clip from an American Burt Bacharach special, which has Anthony Newley in the studio with backing dancers and a set. And it is amazing. It is proper golden age of light entertainment stuff. He really sells it. I don't know about you, Nick, or you listener. I was hoping that that was going to be, I found a YouTube clip of him singing with Danny Baker. 
the song in question. So surely that's a partnership waiting to happen. Is he still, could that still happen? Uh, no, Anthony Newell is no longer with us. Uh, he was due to have a regular part in EastEnders playing a car salesman, but he only actually got to record three episodes and he had to stop because of failing health. And um, he wasn't around for very much, like only a few months after that. So he's not been with since 1999. Anyway, moving on, this Frankie Avalon version of Why, it was also in the UK charts this week, but it was already on the way down. It only got as high as number 20. So Anthony newly won this particular chart battle fair and square, and it is easy to see why. Frankie Avalon, big star in the US, but he didn't mean very much over here. Well, Anthony newly was already perfectly well known in the UK. So he had that advantage, but also more than that, Anthony Newley's version is clearly the better version. Arrangement-wise, it's similar. It tinkles and or twinkles in much the same way, but it does have a bit more spring in its step. The Avalon version, it drags a bit by comparison. And whereas Frankie Avalon was this blandly handsome boy-next-door type with a bland vocal delivery to match, Anthony Newley is the better singer. His phrasing is more interesting. His voice has a lot more personality. David Bowie's early solo work famously drew on Anthony Newley for inspiration. You can certainly hear the similarities here. But let's face it, a song as drippy as this needs all the personality it can get. I mean, the lyrics... They aren't exactly metaphysical poetry, are they? You'll search them in vain for an insight into the human condition or a queer subtext. This is heteronormativity writ large, I put it to you. And he's stuck in a somewhat circular argument. He loves her because she loves him and she loves him because he loves her. Well, ain't that peachy. I also did a bit of deep diving into Anthony Dilley's film career. He was married to Joan Collins for most of the 60s. But their marriage hit the rocks when he co-starred alongside her in a film that he wrote, directed, called Can Hieronymus Merkin Ever Forget Mercy Hump and Find True Happiness? The whole film is up on YouTube. I, I dabbled through it. We got an ex-divocate at the time, so I did this schoolboy thing of whizzing through to get to the root bits. I couldn't find any, but it's shockingly bad. And, um, yeah, he behaved so badly that she thought enough is enough. He can't pronounce his O's. Have you noticed this, Anthony Newley? Over. Everything is over. Ood. That sounds like a Nottingham O to me. Very strange. What was the turn of phrase that you used to describe? Hetero-hyper. Heteronormativity. That's an excellent phrase. I don't know what it means, but I enjoyed it. Right then, let us proceed. Oh, you're not going to tell me what it means. You're just going to leave me at, like, ignorance. I'm not going to lead you by the hand and give you a queer studies education in the middle of recording a bloody podcast. Do your own research, Mr. Heteronormativity. <laughs> Heteronormativity. <laughs> right then, come on then, let's have... The 70s. Represented by Edison Lighthouse with Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes. This was their only top 40 hit. They had one more very minor hit a year later called It's Up To You, Petula. It spent five weeks at number one and was replaced by Lee Marvin's Wandering Star. The track was first recorded by a guy called Tony Burrows on lead vocals, and he was just backed by session musicians. When it became a hit... A group was very swiftly put together to perform it on TV, and it did well internationally. Uh, number one in Ireland, top five in Australia, Canada, South Africa, even the USA. And it became, apparently, it became a viral TikTok hit in late 2021. I'll just have to take the computer's word for that. I don't do TikTok. 
Love Grows has also been covered by Frida from ABBA. She released a Swedish language version as a single in 1970, the Swedish title of which translates back as Where You Go, Love Leads Traces. Let's not think about that too closely. Uh, cheap hotels. <laughs> <laughs> It was freedom from Abba the early years. It probably was cheap hotels. It's also like become a reggae standard. There've been loads of reggae cover versions over the years. The best one that I heard was um, an early one, 1970, recorded by Barry Biggs. He actually had a few UK hit singles of his own in the late 70s. Love Grows, Where My Rosemary Goes was written by Tony McCauley and Barry Mason, both very prolific songwriters, loads of hits to their names. I'll draw your attention to just two of them. Tony McCauley, he co-wrote Build Me Up Buttercup with Mike Dabo from Man for Man, see last episode. While Barry Mason, he was the one that wrote the newly controversial lyrics for Tom Jones' Delilah. Edison Lighthouse, they're still together. However, their two longer-serving members didn't join the band until 1973, which is actually after they lost their recording contract. So Radio 2 recently, this came on. They do a birthday song where people get tunes that were number one on their birthday. And this came on. Uh, and my very, very close friend, Scott Mills, who is my favourite radio DJ, couldn't believe that the guy whose birthday was had never heard this song. But I was in my 40s, uh, I think, before I'd actually heard it. It's one of those songs that then you go, oh, I must have heard this. It sounds like you've heard it a million times. I think there's something about this song that makes you feel like it's always been in your awareness, even if it hasn't. Scott Mills compared it to Sweet Caroline, which quite a few people at the time texted in and said, what, what are you talking about? But I can see what he means with the style. I don't think it's similar, but it's got that sort of slightly well not even slightly cheesy chorus it's a bit sort of nonsensey and I, I get what entirely what he means as you could possibly tell i'm struggling to put it into words uh, and the other one that scott compared it to is the one that i definitely compared it to which is uh, build me up buttercup and having heard that the songwriters are involved in both uh, i can really see that i think if it's already been viral i'm not quite convinced maybe there's no more space for this to go further viral but if this was in a good film like if i had a good film placement something like anchorman or like i could see family guy using this and it being one of those it becomes a novelty explosion i could see this being everywhere and it being the type of song that you kind of go off because it's everywhere in a sweet caroline kind of way but then even if you've gone off it you'd still end up singing it whilst walking home from the kebab shop. It's, is it a late hippie banger? I would definitely say people need to avoid the redux, producers, re-recorded, remastered, polished up version because like when it's crystal clear and the production of it's crystal clear, it, it loses quite a bit of the charm. Um, the original version is high enough quality for it to be nice to listen to. The, the soft edge to the recording, if you like, in the right time and the right place. I, I can absolutely see there would be loads of times that you would not want to hear this type of song, but right time and the right place. I just think it's a, a very, very nice song. I had always assumed they were a one-hit wonder. I, so when I found It's Up To You, Petula, a few days ago, I was very excited. It's not bad. It's Up To You, Petula. I quite liked it. I've literally, in the time that we have been sitting here, only just realised that the rosemary in the title is probably a woman. I have generally what? for all these years assumed it was like a gardening thing that 
but it was like the, the rosemary. He was growing, the, literally growing the rosemary, and the, the love happened in the bit of the garden where his herbs were. I, honestly, I'm literally sitting here only just, and it was the "it's up to you" Petula thing because I was thinking, oh, so Petula, oh, this has also got a woman's name in. Oh, it must be that. It wouldn't be the first time that's happened because Cindy Lauper's "Time After Time" is about uh, time that you put with rosemary as a seasoning. Yeah, exactly. I'm just mad about saffron. Um, <laughs> you know, you can. Oh, here we go. There's a, a, a herbs and spices club night. There you go. Anyway, you can have that one on me. Tony Basil. <laughs> Salt and pepper. Ah, there you go. All right, so are we putting the uh, Manfred Mann, Man of War and Man Parish project on the back burner? We most certainly are not. <laughs> There's a lot of people interested in that night, aren't I've there? been forming connections on Twitter about that one. This needs to happen. Anyway, carry on, Nick. Sorry, so... A couple of just uh, factually interesting things about this. It was obviously they were a brand new debut act and it was a new entry at number 12 in the charts, which is quite rare in those days, especially for an unestablished act to go in the charts quite high. And then it went to number one the second week. It went from number 12 to number one, which, again, was quite a big jump in those days. So they were number one as a completely new act that nobody had heard of in the second week, which is weird. And also, I like the brackets. I like a song with proper punctuation. Not why by Anthony Newley, but I do like this because it's got brackets in love verb brackets like love changes everything in many ways by climbing fisher but love grows where my rosemary goes is the same i actually really like this it is an absolute cheese fest but i've had it on playlist for a long time i do a friday afternoon thing at work where i just always do a themed playlist and i've had this on once or twice i think it might have ended up on the food playlist actually and now i realize that that was probably wrong um build me up buttercup is a great comparison i think it is that sort of very fun don't take it too seriously. Little bit of three minute pop, like save all your kisses for me, that kind of thing that, you know, if you're doing a, like a cheesy disco, you've, you're having a house party, you know, you've got a playlist on in the background. It's the sort of thing you'd put on for a bit of joy. This rosemary person, right? I've spent quite a lot of time in the last two weeks wondering how she's doing these days. Because she'll be in her early 70s now, I reckon. I've been wondering, I've been building up a sort of composite profile of what I think Rosemary is up to these days. So I like to think she's living an active life and she's got a nice routine to her weeks. So choral society practice on Tuesday evenings, meetups with the girls every Wednesday morning at the Garden Centre coffee shop, low impact Zumba classes on Thursdays, Weekend outings with the Ramblers group, that sort of thing. She spends a lot of time with the grandchildren and they keep her up to date with music. So she's very fond of Lewis Capaldi, actually. She'll really miss Ken Bruce when he leaves radio too. So she may no longer be the impoverished free spirit that she was in 1970, but I think life has treated Rosemary well. And I feel that love still blooms in her wake. Okay, snapping out of this, getting back to the song. This is very deeply embedded in my childhood memories. Very much part of my personal soundtrack to 1970, as was Frida Payne's Band of Gold from later in the year. Those two tunes have always had a very similar impact on me. They conjure up very specific memories of times and places, and they kind of go deep in a way that perhaps only childhood music can reach. So, much like Holly Johnson's Love Train from last time. I just have no idea how this will sound to people who weren't alive at the time. I think it's joyous and uplifting. And my comparison actually would be to The Love Affairs, uh, their version of Everlasting Love. It was joyous and uplifting in a similar sort of way. 
But perhaps, you know, if you pick it, if you must pick it to pieces, it's every bit as drippy as Anthony Newley's. Why? I can't be objective, so I'm not even going to try. I do need to direct you to an Edison Lighthouse deep cut, though, because there was one other single affair that I do actually remember from the time. It got played on kids' TV a bit. It was the last single which they released, and it wasn't a hit. It was called Find Mr Zebedee. This must be the only song ever written about a retirement presentation to a school janitor. What's happening is... School assembly is taking place. They've got the president ready to give to Mr Zebedee, but oh no, Mr Zebedee's chair is empty. We must find Mr Zebedee. And they discuss in the song, maybe we should just sing the hymn again while we go and find him. And of course, at the end of the end of the song, he comes back and they hand over the president and there's applause on the record. I think it's about time someone wrote another song about retiring school janitors. It's an untapped scene in popular song. Why stop at one song? Concept album. This screams double gatefold concept album. Mike, have you hit your head? (laughs) Was that a weird one? The last 10 minutes has just been an absolute stream of random words. (laughs) Do you know, when, when songs name girls by names, I often do this mental calculation. Because like when they mention the song, they're probably like like 19 or 20. And I'm thinking, well, how old would they be now? And I'm thinking, well, well, what would they be like now? So I just I did that exercise on Rosemary. I honestly think that the person who thinks the Rosemary in the song is a herb. Yes. Saying to somebody else who has at least created a magical alternate universe involving said Rosemary as a person. Have you hit your head? This is quality <laughs> content. This is great. I've never been to the Edison Lighthouse either. Well, it's actually called Eddie Stone Lighthouse. They didn't even name it proper. Oh. Yeah. Right then. I think it's time we tackled. The 80s. Which are represented by Kenny Rogers and Coward of the County. This was the second of two number ones for Kenny Rogers following Lucille in 1977. Spent two weeks at number one and was knocked off the top by Blondie's Atomic. Altogether, Kenny Rogers had five UK top tens between 1969 and 1983. And once again, like Edison Lighthouse before it, this also produced a reggae cover version by Sister Nancy in 1982. She retitled it Coward of the Country. Listen to it at your peril. It's a very free adaptation. And get this, it was also covered in 1981 by Alvin and the Chipmunks, albeit with some lyrical changes to soften some of the darkness contained in the song. The song was turned into a full-length TV movie, also called Coward of the County, and it co-starred Kenny Rogers as the uncle figure who narrates the original song. Now, 1980 hits didn't come with trigger warnings, so I think I just might need to issue one now. Uh, The song does deal with serious sexual assault. If that's not something you really want to hear, then I suggest you skip forwards about 15 minutes till we get to the 1990s. It's 15 minutes. We could talk about this for 30 seconds or six days. (laughs) You know, yeah, we so could. I Honestly, I have no idea what you guys made of this. Right, buckle up. So... Rewind two weeks till you said, right, we're going to do Kenny Rogers, Coward of the County. And I thought, right, okay, what do I know about Kenny Rogers? I know Ireland's in the stream. I know The Gambler. And I know it's a a fine time to leave me Lucille. 
I thought, right, okay, so we're going to throw ourselves into this. I love the gambler. Absolutely love the gambler. Never a hit in the UK, bizarrely. So I have been on a big old Kenny Rogers journey. I've watched a BBC Four documentary about Kenny Rogers. I've listened to all of the Kenny Rogers, all the 60s Kenny Rogers, the 70s, the 80s soft rock Kenny Rogers, the Lionel Richie soul Kenny Rogers, the country Kenny Rogers, the pop Kenny Rogers, all the Kenny Rogers. And I have come out the other side, the most enormous Kenny Rogers fan. And I have absolutely no idea why. Because country Kenny Rogers is not the sort of thing I listen to. The proper old school 70s country, not for me. 80s Kenny Rogers is incredibly bland. It is the AORist AOR you could possibly imagine. The production is it makes Susudio look like they've knocked it together on a, you know, on the uh, in the back of a van, right? It is terrible. It's terrible. The early Kenny Rogers he, is weird. He just doesn't really know what he wants to do. That drop just dropped in to see what my condition, my condition was in thing is just bonkers. Right track. Yeah, absolutely love it. The thing I, I found really hard to believe, and I had to check this, is that Coward of the County, is not written by the same people who wrote The Gambler because they are essentially the same song. It's a moralistic story told in the same style in his gruff storytelling, Kenny Rogers. You know, you can imagine him singing it sat in a rocking chair next to a fireplace where I'm going to tell you a story about a bad man and three bad brothers and a bad man. I don't think Carol County is as good as The Gambler, but I do think it's great. I have no idea why it was a hit absolutely none whatsoever if you look at the charts in this week in 1980 it's absolute madness kenny rogers the specials the nolans the boomtown rats and captain beaky ladies and gentlemen <laughs> what what's going on who was buying all of those records it's, it's the weirdest selection you could possibly imagine he swooped in kenny rogers he had a number one with lucille he had a number one with coward in the county and no other hits and why? Why those two are not the gambler? And that one he did with Kim Carnes, which is fantastic. And you know, minor hit with We've Got Tonight with Sheena Easton, who was massive at the time. Why why not those hits? So I don't understand why he wasn't more successful. In the America, I mean you again, you've heard of Kenny Rogers, but he sold 140 million records. He's literally one of the biggest selling artists ever of all time without hardly having any hits here. So it's been a hell of a two weeks and just cannot get enough Kenny Rogers. I think um, country can be a bit of a an anomaly. It's an odd thing is country music. In the context of the first three tunes that we've had, I actually think it's kind of useful because we've had a tune from 1960, then from 1970, then from 1980. And the 60s one, you know, it is 1960. It's almost 50s. It's quite a 50s sounding song. The one from 1970 was quite a 60s sounding tune, whereas country kind of exists outside of time zones a lot of the time. This could have come from any decade because it's country music. It doesn't massively progress. It's not massively retro. It just exists. The downside of that is that sometimes country can be a little bit naff. It is so huge, particularly in the States. 
and you've got artists who you know really have their own sound johnny cash had the edge and the darkness dolly parton had a pop sensibility and I, I kind of feel that particularly on this song kenny doesn't really have either of those it's just a bit betwixt the two and given that this song features an absolutely horrific crime it's lack of darkness and it's lack of edge makes this have have a real downfall i when kenny rogers name came up i was i really really think the gambler is a fantastic record and then yes some of his duets are lovely i vaguely recalled hearing this song a couple of times on radio and was like oh you know i'm quite looking forward to revisiting that seeing how it sounds but the delivery of it has no darkness for what really really should be a darker song scar punk does this quite a lot they'll be talking about awful awful situations but with cheerful trumpets and upbeat melodies and oh i i'm going to kill myself and i think scar punk it works whereas i think for me cheerful country plodding doesn't work for a subject matter that is so dark and i I just think it ends up as a bit of a trope it is storytelling it's uh you know country and folk are off you know very very similar in that they just tell stories and the delivery of this means that the story just ends up sounding like a trope the moral at the end seems to be not you you know it isn't a moral of don't resort to violence it is that hey yeah absolutely resort to violence uh, which I, I kind of find a, a really disappointing payoff for it i know the first time that i heard it i was delighted that violence was resorted to but you know and that kind of feels just like a bit like a hollywood thing hey you know we should all be better people and we should all try and resolve things without our fists but sometimes just go and give them a right good kicking uh, and yeah and it is you know it's a satisfying thing to hear that those guys got their comeuppance but i kind of want them to get a bit more than just a good kicking in a bar it's not a bad song i'd just like it to receive a different treatment kenny rogers voice sounds like he could do with clearing his throat on this uh, at the beginning and it all ends up just a bit too cliched for me i know a lot of country really relies on cliche country is almost a cliche in itself but I think in this case, rather than it adding to the charm, it's the cliche that lets it down. Very interesting. Right. I have been on such a journey with this song. I really have. Over the past couple of weeks, I have thought about Coward of the County more than all of the other songs put together. And that includes me speculating about what happened to Rosemary. Uh, when its name came up in the draw, I shuddered. I didn't like it at the time. I thought it was a ghastly piece of commercial country schlock. Then I started listening, really, properly, fully listening, and my views started to change. Country music can be great at storytelling, and this tells its story brilliantly well. You can't put it on in the background. You have to listen, and this totally pulls you into its world. It's cinematic. You can see the action unfold in your mind's eye. And Kenny Rogers doesn't over-emote. He narrates the story in even tones, which let the lyrics do all the work with one exception. When his voice briefly rises and intensifies on the line, there was three of them. It places the one stress that the song needs in exactly the right place. And the effect is chilling. In fact, the whole song is chilling. I played this earlier in the week. It gave me actual physical shivers all the way through. Right. Then there's the whole issue of the lyrical content. Clearly problematic, 
open to debate. It's a song about exacting violent revenge for a gang rape with a payoff line that reads, sometimes you gotta fight when you're a man. So, okay, firstly, is it exploitative? Is it serving up sexual assault as light entertainment? Well, I don't think it is. Country music has a long tradition of addressing darker themes, as does English folk music for that matter. And I don't see why this shouldn't be allowed. The assault isn't sensationalized for cheap effects. We're only given the most basic details. They took turns. There were three of them. A dress was torn. It's all you need to know, nothing more, nothing less. And, Let's be consistent here. Nick Cave released a whole album of murder ballads. He had a hit single with Kylie Minogue, which ends with him murdering her with a rock, giving us no other reason than all beauty must die. But he can do that because he's Nick Cave and he's dark and he's edgy, while Kenny Rogers is his cuddly mainstream star. So somehow this makes Coward of the County tasteless. I don't think it does. OK, secondly, if the song doesn't glorify the rape, does it glorify the violent revenge? Is the message here that only by beating up the Gatlin brothers does Tommy become a real man and all real men should follow his example? Again, I don't think that's what this song is about. It's much more complex than that. Tommy is embedded within a culture where violence is part of life. By refusing to be violent, he's seen as weak. Because he's seen as weak, his wife suffers a terrible ordeal because her attackers think they can get away with it. Then there's only one course of action available to him. Sure, Becky could have gone to the police, but probably fair to assume that police handling of rape cases in Midwestern America in 1980 left a lot to be desired, to put it mildly. So there's no justice except rough justice. And without rough justice, the assault could happen again. But by administering this rough justice, Tommy has to break the principles of a lifetime. Now, this doesn't ennoble him. It merely teaches him a bitter, tragic truth. The song ends in tragedy, not triumph. Or, at the very least, you can interpret that way because Tenny Rogers doesn't tell you what to think about any of it. It's a masterful piece of work. However, yeah, I haven't finished yet. I have a massive reservation about Coward of the County. There's one aspect to it which is genuinely nasty. I found this out while doing my research. Right, you may wonder why the villains of the piece are called the Gatlin Boys. It's not a very common surname. It's not a particularly poetic surname. So why was the surname Gatlin chosen? Well, now, there was a country singer called Larry Gatlin. He'd been having hits on the US country chart since 1974. He wasn't as famous as Kenny Rogers, but he was certainly well known by country fans. He actually topped the US country charts in 1978. Now, Larry Gatlin had two brothers who performed with him. And by 1979, they were recording as the Gatlin Brothers. Again, they had a number one country single. And please note, there were three of them. So any country fan listening to Coward of the County would have instantly spotted the Gatlin name. And they might have wondered what it was doing there. Kenny Rogers claimed it was a coincidence. Billy Ed Wheeler who co-wrote the tune, he said, direct quote, we chose the name because we liked the sound of it. We tried some other names like the Barlow Boys, but they just didn't have the grit of the Gatlin Boys. And then he continues. I didn't realise then that Larry Gatlin had dated a girl named Becky and had written a song about her. And by the way, he did. It was called Sweet Becky Walker and it came out as a single. So this is getting more than merely coincidental, wouldn't you say? So... That just leaves the other co-writer of the song, 
Roger Bowling. Now, Roger Bowling had written Kenny Rogers' other UK number one, Lucille. And in 1977, he won Song of the Year for it at the CMAs. Now, the CMAs are like country music equivalent to the Grammys. Larry Gatlin was there too. And after Roger Bowling got his award, he tried to congratulate Roger Bowling for his award. Bowling's response, F you, Gatlin. Gatlin's response, let me tell you something, Hoss. If we weren't in the grand old Oakley house dressed up in tuxedos, I would just open a boot shop in your ass. Lo and behold, a couple of years later, the Gatlin boys gang rape someone with the same name as Larry Gatlin's ex-girlfriend. I mean, this puts most hip-hop beefs into perspective, right? Even Biggie and Tupac never went quite that far. And this, for me, puts a completely different slant on the song. A lot of people think it's problematic, and I agree, but I think it's problematic for a very different reason. I mean, Biggie and Tupac did get killed, just to, to clarify that. Well, yeah, there was that. That, that was pretty serious. But yeah, that is, wow, that is weird. Christ. I know, right? Yeah. I think that's a conclusion you can draw. I don't think that is necessarily true. Obviously, there's two sides to every story. But whatever the circumstances, I just think what a thing to do. What a thing to do. Let's move on. Right, here come. This is Nothing Compares to You by Sinead O'Connor. It was her only number one hit. It was also her only top 10 hit in the UK. Spent four weeks at number one and it was replaced by Beats International's Dub Be Good To Me. Altogether, Sinead O'Connor had eight top 40 hits between 1988 and 2007. Song was written by Prince, who first recorded it in 1984, although that version remained unreleased until 2018. Then Prince re-recorded it in 1985 with a band called The Family. It was released as an album track on The Family's debut album. Then after it was a hit for Sinead O'Connor, Prince added a new live version accompanied by Rosie Gaines to the Greatest Hits compilation, which came out that year. Also later in June 1990, an Italian down-tempo dance cover by MXM reached number 68. And then finally, Aretha Franklin did a rather sprightly jazz cover on her final studio album in 2014. And it was seen as the cover of the Sinead version, not the Prince version. Well, if the listeners are thinking that we all had too much to say about the last song, they'll be glad to hear I haven't really got much to say about this one. I can't deny it's a good song, but if Henny's was too far down the country cliche road for me. This one is, it's a bit too far down the clutching at my t-shirt sort of heart road of things for me. It's a great lyric, which is what you'd expect of Prince. Performance is great. It's just, it's not really my thing. I wouldn't be disappointed if this came on in a jukebox, but I wouldn't put it on myself and I wouldn't be glad it came on. It just, come on. Can we just class this as a ballad? And if we can, I like a bit more power to my ballads. I guess we could talk about Sinead as a person all day uh, and indeed Prince all day. And I I mean, I'm hoping that Prince will crop up again in the course of things so that we could chat about him. I can accept why people would like this and I don't dislike it, but I don't like it. It, It's one of those ones where I go, yeah, okay. Uh, Yeah, I feel pretty much the same about it. It's just wallpaper, this song, as far as I could tell. It was a slightly strange hit, wasn't it? Because her previous album had been weird. I mean, Mandinka is weird and the album was weird. I listened to this album the other day and it's also a bit odd. It's not really symptomatic of her, is it? It's an outlier for her. 
she never did really anything like this before or after. It's a bit of a weird one. I think the opening line, it's been seven hours and 15 days, is brilliant. I mean, as an opening line for a song, I think that is phenomenal because it's immediately you're curious as to why the time's the wrong way round. I think it's a really clever bit of writing. What also happened is that we were talking about early 1989 in the last episode and what a great time it was for pop music and stuff. And you fast forward to a year and in a very short space of time, it had all started to go wrong for me. I fell out of love with pop music and the charts very quickly as 1989 went on. I was looking at the uh, the charts this week where this was the number one. Technotronic, Beats International, Black Box, Sybil, Mantronics. I didn't like any of that stuff. I didn't like any of that stuff. Phil Collins, I wasn't really into that either. There was very little in the charts at this point that I liked. Happened really quickly, probably in the space of about six months. It had just gone for I love this to I don't like any of this. So you'd have to say it's a classic. Lots of people must love it. It must mean a lot to a lot of people. But it means absolutely nothing to me then or now. So the best thing I can do is distract you by giving you a list of other songs that have been in the charts with a number two in. Hey! Would you like that? Oh, please! Actually, the digit two, and the two ha- the rules are the two has to be in its own right. It can't be part of a bigger number, like 1922, for example. So it can only be a number two. So you've got To You by David Getter and Justin Bieber, Two Step by Ed Sheeran, Into by Wistrom, P2, Little Uzi Vert, Two Faced by Louise, Two Times by Anne Lee, there's a bop, uh, One, Two, Three by Gloria Estefan and the Miami Sound Machine and by Len Barry, Song Two by Blur, Will 2K by Will Smith and e Equals MC Squared by Big Audio Dynamite, other songs with a top 40 songs with a number two in. Two could play that game, Bobby Brown surely must have charted. No, it was a TWO. I've got two more of them. One Two Step by Kiara, or Ciara, whatever you say it, and To Be Loved, I Am Ready by Lizzo. No, I I had a look today. They had to get to the top (laughs) 40, and they had to be a number two in their own right, not next to another number. One Two Step is one comma two. That's why Nick didn't find it. One Mm. comma two step. It's got to be allowed, hasn't it? And to be loved, the number two is the first word in the song title. I'm going to check this. I'm going to go and check who can play that game. I shall look for Lizzo while you talk about Sinead O'Connor. Right, okay, I'm, I'm sorry, guys. I'm going to have to drag you back down again. I don't want to do this, and I'm going to try and be quicker about it than I was on my treatise on Kenny Rogers. But here's the thing. I've read Sinead O'Connor's autobiography, so I do have quite a lot of background. I really am going to try and condense this. Now, you will notice famously on the video it's a one take video as i recall when Sinead o'connor gets to the line all the flowers that you planted mama in the backyard all died when you went away she sheds a tear tear rolls down her face she has subsequently explained that those tears were triggered by thoughts of her mother who died in a car accident in 1985 who did grow flowers in the backyard now the thing about Sinead O'Connor's mother, which you need to know, is Sinead O'Connor's mother was horrifically abusive to Sinead O'Connor all the way through her childhood and adolescence. And I mean horrific. Let's just leave it at that. Read the book. So Prince's song, as he wrote it, was about the end of a relationship, fair and square, right? But it is clear to me that that for Sinead O'Connor, this song has a double meaning. You look through the lyrics, you look at the way she sings it. I definitely think it's there. She's also singing about 
her dead mother. And I think the idea is the song is allowing her to purge her demons. It's uh, to express the love, which is still felt despite everything. She says this repeatedly in the book. And maybe, maybe to obtain some closure. Now, I am someone who lost a deeply dysfunctional parent at a relatively young age myself, so I can relate to this. There's one line in particular which resonates. Since you've been gone, I can do whatever I want. I can see whomever I choose. It resonates with me because the loss of that parent carried with it a certain sense of relief and release. And yes, I too could finally be who I wanted to be. So did this song bring Sinead O'Connor closure? Not at all. I'll tell you why. As a result of the song's success, she was invited to meet Prince at one of his homes. And to say that the meeting did not go well would be a massive understatement. It actually ended with Sinead fleeing the grounds of Prince's estate on foot in genuine fear for her physical safety. She'd already been physically attacked. She thought it was going to escalate. She had good reason to think so. She had no means of transport back to where she was staying. This house was right in the middle of nowhere. Then she had to hide in the undergrowth from him as he went searching for her in his car. And he found her and he tried to attack her again and she got away again. And eventually she had to knock on some random person's door to get a lift back to where she was staying. All in the autobiography. I know it's only one person's point of view, but when you read it, you have no reason to doubt it. it it's a shocking and disturbing story. Prince does not come out of it well. So this is the awful thing about this song. Instead of laying the ghost of her mother to rest, which I think she might have wanted it to do, and it might be why she selected it to sing, what the success of the song actually did was bring her face to face with another, and I'm using her words specifically here, violent abuser of women, in a situation which triggered all the memories of her mother's violent abuse. And she says this, she says she can see the look in his face the moment it appears, she knows it for what it is, she knows she's got to go away. Okay, that's dark stuff. It doesn't, of course, have to colour your response, your personal response to this record. All of that was a postscript to the recording. The record remains powerful enough, even if you only read it as a breakup song. Although I've overplayed it over the years and it doesn't move me like it used to, I still think this is a superb piece of work. Hopefully we won't get this dark again. I will allow One Two Step by Kiara and Missy Elliott. And I, because it's not in the archive, because it is still in the charts, you can have To Be Loved by Lizzo as well. Thank you. But you can't have to can play that game. Fair enough. Ah, right. Come on, then. Let's bring on... Surely, because we've had two really dark decades, you're both just going to be completely on board with your unbridled love for the mighty Oasis. I can't wait to hear you both enthused about this song. I am looking forward to this. Come on, positivity. Listeners, our song from the 2000s is by Oasis. And it's called Go Let It Out. It was the fifth of eight number ones for Oasis. Enter the charts at number one. But having entered the charts at number one, it only spent one week there, pretty much in common with everything else that was number one in 2000. It was replaced by All Saints, Pure Shores. Altogether, Oasis had 23 top 10 hits between 1994 and 2009. That includes a consecutive run of 18 top five hits, stretching from whatever in 1994 to Let There Be Love in 2005. 
It was the lead single from their fourth studio album, Standing on the Shoulder of Giants. And it was their first recording following the departure of rhythm guitarist Bonehead and bassist Gigsy from the original lineup. As their replacements had yet to be recruited, Noel Gallagher actually plays all the instruments on this track apart from the drums. And it continued the band's value for money policy of including two otherwise unreleased tracks on the B-side. Let's all make believe and brackets as long as they've got close brackets cigarettes in hell trev you'll have to hang on a bit nick's gonna have his say right um so when oasis are good oasis are great most people of a similar age will probably determine that that is true i mean i did the same as everybody else you know i was 21 when definitely maybe came out i bought morning glory i bought be here now as everybody did in the first week it came out so you know i was pretty much on board with oasis until this this to me is oasis at their most lazy and obnoxious this is the thing that makes me not want to listen to the good oasis ever again because you're only ever a couple of songs away from this and from lila and from Oh, that terrible, lazy, 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 just throw out any old waste, I believe is your word, and it'll get to number one, and me, Eddie, love wits will buy it. After this, they did some stuff that I liked again. I thought they tried a little bit harder with the next album. Hindu Times is great. I like Little by Little. I like Stop Crying Your Heart. That's what I bought. Heathen Chemistry, I think, was the album after this. And then that was it for me, for Oasis. So it's a funny one. We've talked about like Madonna and we've talked about Calvin Harris, where you can make one great CD of the stuff of theirs that you like. I could do that with Oasis, quite comfortably make one CD of Oasis stuff that I really like. This would be nowhere near it. He's swaggering on a bus in the... Hey, lads! Swaggering on a bus in the video with his sunglasses on. He just looks like a prick. Noel said, this is the closest we came to sounding like a modern-day Beatles. You're like, easy bollocks. <laughs> I'd never made that connection until I read that amazing quote. I was real insights. What are you talking about, you utter, utter, utter <laughs> pillock? So this is not me having to go at Oasis, right? Great Oasis is great Oasis. This is rubbish oasis done rubbishly come on then trev in your charge like the cavalry so behind the magic listeners at the end of these recording sessions we find out what the randomizer delivers us for the next episode and when this one cropped up you both acted really weird and i went i was like that's, that's a weird response to that tune i went away thinking i love that tune that night, I was sort of popping downstairs, doing the dishes, making myself a cup of tea, going to watch uh, The Detectorist, which is what my dad do after we record these things. And I was halfway through singing it for the second time in my head when I realised that I was actually singing Stand By Me uh, by Oasis, not this tune whatsoever. Um, I, I could see what he's trying to say with his Beatlesy sound because there's sort of a keyboard thing going on, which is a really Beatles sound in it. It doesn't sound like a Beatles song, but there's definitely a lot of Beatles production in there. I think by comparing it to the Beatles, that makes this sound really, really weak. I also think that by comparing this to the rest of Oasis, it makes this song sound really, really weak. But 
that's still not to say I don't think this is a bad song. I think this is a great song, actually. I just think it suffers by comparison to the Beatles because of that sort of bah, 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 bah noise that's going on. There. I am the walrus, isn't it? Yeah. And by comparison to the rest of Oasis. Now, I do think it's a bit damning to say what I'm about to say, um, but I think this is actually a, a case in favour of Oasis splitting up. Now, I don't feel that badly about this song at all. And sibling violence aside, I think we benefited from Oasis splitting up because we didn't get a lot of this kind of thing. It sounds like generic Oasis. There's loads of bands. One of the obvious, it's an easy thing to say, but it is true. Red Hot Chili Peppers found their sound and stuck to it and are still releasing five albums a year of songs about California. Meanwhile, Oasis split up. And they're not still just doing this. And I think that's to the benefit of Oasis's legacy. It is still anthemic stadium indie. It is a bit easy. You know, it's it's a bit when Kings of Leon were doing some tapping stuff as well. You know, you're going, oh, I could probably live without it. But still, if you're in a band for a living, you've got to do something. And they had three more albums after this. And they weren't all, you know, this wasn't the start of the end. One of the albums, Don't Believe the Truth, was a bit of a departure sound-wise. Heathen Chemistry was kind of a bit more of the same of this. And I realised I never actually owned their last album, Dig Out Your Soul. I really like Oasis, and I'm going to use a stronger word than dick. <laughs> I think they're twats. Um, you know, they're not particularly likeable people. I think uh, Noel's the most likeable of them, and he's still a bit of a dick, isn't he? Um, but I think there's a space for dicks in the world of rock and roll. I actually think we're kind of missing dickheads at the moment. You know, we've got a lot of really nice people like Ed Sheeran, whereas I could actually, I could do with a twat um, coming along and being a rock star and being a twat. Do rock stars need to be lovely? Maybe not. Um, so yes, I am going to go and complete my Oasis album collection uh, by buying the last album as soon as I can afford it. It's not the best song by Oasis, but I do think this is a good song. Thing is, it was another nine years before they split up. So let's think there were six years in, nine years to go. They weren't even halfway through their recording career at this stage. It's funny because I think of this as late period Oasis, but it wasn't even halfway through. Right. I've seen Oasis live three times and there were three very different experiences. So... <clears throat> I saw them at Nebworth in 1996, which is meant to be this landmark moment in British music history. I thought they were underwhelming. I actually thought the Prodigy were better. They were the support act. Couldn't see the stage. We're too far back to see the stage unless I jumped up as high as I could possibly go. And then I could see the stage for a split second. But we had TV screens. So it's basically like watching it on TV. Um, one of our group went off to get the beers in. Took him so long to get the beers in that while he was doing that, the Manic Street Preachers came on stage, played their entire set and left the stage. Then he came back with the beers. That was the sort of event it was. Then I saw them in Nottingham in 2002, and this time they were excellent. They were on fire. I found what I wrote about it on my blog at the time. I said, this one was all about the crowd. Plus, Liam was born to sing My Generation. He may be a twat, but he still makes a damn good rock star. Same word there, you see. Then I saw in 2009 at the V Festival their last ever gig. My God, it was appalling. You could totally see why they broke up a week later. Everything was played like a dirge at this funereal pace. There was a very telling moment during Wonderwall 
at the line, there are things I'd like to say to you, but I don't know how, where the camera happened to catch Noel Gallagher's expression. And that told you everything you needed to know. The entire crowd of the VFAS walk drunk out their skulls, singing along to every word. They didn't care. They didn't even notice. But when they got round to Oasis, completely murdering Live Forever, one of their finer songs, I just went and met with them backstage and she hadn't even bothered coming out in the first place. Okay, right. At this particular point, I think a lot of people wanted Go Let It Out to be another Oasis classic. We all knew they'd lost their way with Be Here Now. Everybody knew it. And it had been two years since the last single. And most of us wanted them to get back to being great again. This one, it's definitely better than the three singles from Be Here Now. But it's also, I think, not as good as any of the singles before Be Here Now. They had some okay singles ahead of them still. But perhaps this is the point, as you suggested, Trev, where diminishing returns did start to set in. The lyrics, right. Well, the, let's let's be polite and say the lyrics are open to interpretation. They're also scoop, not entirely original. Right. Compare and contrast. This is the chorus which Noel Gallagher wrote. Is it any wonder why princes and kings are clowns that caper in their sawdust rings? Ordinary people that are like you and me, we're the keepers of their destiny. Compare and contrast, if you will, with the first verse of a poem written in 1890 by R.L. Sharp called A Bag of Tools. Isn't it strange that princes and kings and clowns that caper in sawdust rings and common people like you and me are builders for eternity? Sorry. <laughs> mm, busted hey it was out of copyright who cares i love the way that you use the term scoop to scoop listeners oasis and plagiarism that is the first time i've ever heard it mentioned that oasis <laughs> i would submit that this is a manifestly egregious example my lud you're going to tell me that they base some of their stuff on the beatles in a minute let's not go too far <laughs> where did they come from oasis anyway i know so little about them <laughs> are they brothers <laughs> i didn't even know they were brothers <laughs> i thought they looked like one another but i never realized they were brothers brothers from <laughs> manchester who like the beatles and plagiarize right my world's upside down i must look them up <laughs> b-sides are quite good though i quite like the b-sides all those early oasis singles they did have great b-sides like suede actually when suede were in the heyday oasis were one of the great b-sides bands judge us by our b-sides save the gallagher's <laughs> suede's uh, sci-fi lullabies their b-sides compilation double album is fantastic it's as good as anything they ever did yeah couldn't agree more. Yeah, the bit the Oasis B-side album that they did decry as well. They were just like, no, this is just a record label getting more money out of people. But they were contractually bound to do it. But that is a great album. Off the World Away, Acquiesce, The Master Plan, Round Our Way. I mean, just incredible. Let's conclude this podcast by skipping forward to... <laughs> This is Everybody Hurts by Helping Haiti. This was a one-off charity project. It spent two weeks at number one, but after that, only two more weeks inside the top 40. And it was replaced by Jason Derulo's In My Head. It is the only number one ever written by R.E.M., who never got higher than number three with The Great Beyond in 2000. They released their own version of Everybody Hurts as a single. That peaked at number seven in 1993. 
This version was recorded and released to raise funds for the victims of a catastrophic earthquake in Haiti, which, according to official Haiti government figures, killed over 300,000 people. The idea of releasing a charity single actually came from Gordon Brown, who was prime minister at the time. He asked Simon Cowell to choose a song and to oversee the project. And so Everybody Hurts was Simon Cowell's choice of song. The project moved very quickly. The earthquake struck Haiti on January the 12th. The single was released on February the 7th. 21 artists sang on it. Actually, I think that's 23 artists sang on it. All of them were number one artists in their own right, if you include albums as well as singles. I'll just quickly rattle through them in an order of appearance. So, Leona Lewis, Rod Stewart, Mariah Carey, Cheryl Cole, Mika, Michael Bublé, Joe McEldry, Miley Cyrus, James Blunt, Gary Barlow and Mark Owen to take that, John Bon Jovi, James Morrison, Alexandra Burke, Susan Boyle, all four members of JLS, Shane and Mark from Westlife, Kylie Minogue and Robbie Williams. Side note. Aritzi Williams of JLS actually lost several of his own family members in the earthquake. Proceeds from the single were split between the Sun Newspapers Helping Naiety Fund and the Disasters Emergency Committee. Gordon Brown duly agreed to waive the VAT and REM, who were fully on board of the whole thing, they agreed to waive all of their royalties as well. In a week where we've had two songs with definite dark sides to them, ending on a song raising money for uh, an earthquake that killed 300,000 people. It's a real nice, upbeat way to end things. Um, I, I feel, unfortunately, because this was, you know, raising money for such a worthy cause, I, I kind of feel that my uh, review of this is going to send me directly to hell. Um, I think it's the best song of the ones we've had this time around, but it's the performance of it that we're here to talk about. I deliberately didn't listen to Prince's many other versions of the track that he wrote. I didn't even listen to the one with garage legend Rosie Gaines because I didn't even know that he'd done one. And I like Rosie Gaines's voice. And I was like, no, I'll go back and listen to that another time because it might colour how I feel about that song. So I'm going to try and only talk about this version. And there actually is an alternative recording of this performance. It's got it's kind of lower production. It's got less strings. And really all you can hear in that is the vocalist taking turns to out overperform each other. Or should I say out overperform each other? Like I say, I do kind of feel like I'm going to go to hell for this. But it's just so sincere and worthy and a lot of rich people looking really, really sad um, trying to get your money off you. And I don't dislike charity songs, but this is just so far down that line of this, you know, black and white staring into the camera. Now, I I always say music is subjective and I already loved the REM version and I do think that sort of colours my feelings about this because I didn't know Lou Reed's Perfect Day and the treatment that the BBC did of that I thought was absolutely fantastic. Now I saw that for the first time as it was meant to be, it was just an advert for the BBC that came on and I was like what is this? And it was the first time I'd seen that type of thing done and I thought that was a masterpiece. There's been loads of these since where everybody gets a line uh, and it's just been done before. When you see the people who are on it, it reeks of Simon Cowell. There are so many competition winners. 
Now, James Blunt, whose online presence I think is absolutely fantastic, and I don't dislike James Blunt, he sounds like Fergal Sharkey on this. And I kind of wish it had been Fergal Sharkey because that would have been a real, you know, oh yeah, there's there's Kylie and Robbie and, and you know, all those kind of people. And then, then there's all the competition winners. Fergal Sharkey had turned up. I'd be like, oh yeah, brilliant. I'm, I'm on board. But no, this was like partly to raise money for the Sun newspaper's appeal. And if you could hear the phrase, the Sun newspaper raising money for people who they would describe as Johnny Foreigner, just really conflicts me. It's a, a, an absolute hate-filled rag that aims its hate squarely at people from poorer countries. And that didn't help me at all with this. I like some of the artists that are on this song and it is a wonderful song. And I hope you can tell me that I'm really conflicted with this. If it was the first version I'd heard, I think I would like it more than I do. But I think I'm going to end up marking it relatively highly <laughs> despite this diatribe that I've just given you. But it's just Owl City. And I really don't like that guy. I, not quite as much as I dislike the sun. But yeah, there's a lot of conflict for me in uh, this version, I'm afraid. So the way I went about this is much the same way that I went about the Mel and Kim rocking around the Christmas tree thing that we had a few episodes ago. Because you have, for me, you have to divorce the cause from the song. And we're here to talk about the song. So hooray. 450,000 people bought it in the first week. It raised an absolute ton of money. Terrible, terrible disaster. Did a great job of raising a ton of money. Went to very good causes. Absolutely questionable. Let's just ooh, underline that. Then let's talk about the song. I agree with Trev. It absolutely reeks of Simon Cowell. The stench of it overpowers the whole thing. And actually, I was quite offended by it in some ways. For a start, it is the weirdest selection of people you could possibly imagine. Michael Bublé, Joe McKeldry. Joe McKeldry. Where is Joe McKeldry these days? He's less famous than Rosemary out the song these days. <laughs> Mariah Carey. Mariah Carey. JLS, Susan Boyle, Rod Stewart, James Blunt, James Morrison. I mean, like, it's like someone threw a Bible, uh, the A to Z of pop music up in the air, and whatever pages they caught, that's who they rang. It's a bizarre selection of people. The video I actually found borderline offensive, and I found it really hard to watch. The video is about every individual in its own performance. It is not about disaster or charity or raising money or any of those things. It is about... Mariah Carey clutching a rose and over-singing the whole thing to camera. And they all do it. They pretty much all do it. And it's actually, you think, stop it. Not about you. Just for one minute, remember that this is supposed to be to tackle a giant catastrophe. It's not about you with your fists thing, giving it the full Michael Bolton toilet flush gesticulation. And I actually found it really, really difficult to watch. I agree with Trev. It's a great song. R.E.M. are great. It's a great song. This is an appalling version of it. It raised a lot of money. Hooray. Despite being almost borderline crass. Well, of course, that begs the question. How would you present those stars in the video in a way that was more respectful to the event? It's shot in black and white. Sets are fairly simple. It's fairly direct to camera. I mean, they've got to be the stars they are on camera because that's the point of them being on the record. In terms of the diversity of the people, yeah, I mean, obviously there were some cow competition winners. There, there were bound to be. I mean, they were big at the time and, 
you're going to assemble this in a month. You're going to you're going to pick the first people you need to address more. But the point of the, having a massive range of people is it covers a massive range of markets. If you've got different generations' favourite people all on the same record, you'll shift more copies. I mean, I, I can't really take that criticism of it, really. Well, why be in it? People know who's on it, right? So they've done PR. They're on the telly. Everybody knows who's singing on it because they know. Why show them at all? I felt like it was a bit of, here's a bit of marketing for, you know, the people who Simon Cowell wants to sell more records as well. Just do the cause. Don't be in the video. Anyway, right. Union J, Raksu, Zig and Zag, Helping Haiti. We're only eight episodes in. Already half of our episodes have featured songs with a close connection to Simon Cowell. Who'd have thought? But here's the thing. Without Simon Cowell, Leonard Cohen and R.E.M. would never have written UK number one singles. So it can't be all that bad, can he? Hmm? Hmm? All right. There's a very well-worn debate about the pros and cons of all-star charity singles, whether they're genuinely a force for good or whether they're merely an exercise in virtue signalling that helps to let governments off the hook. I don't want to exhume that debate here. All right. Yeah, I agree. Look at it as a piece of music. Well, hmm, I think it's a respectably faithful cover of R.E.M.'s original. It doesn't do anything particularly different with it. It doesn't need to. It's a strong enough song already. They're just keeping it straightforward. I thought the vocal performances were pretty decent, really. I didn't think there was too much over-emoting. I thought there's an appropriate level of sincerity in the performances. I thought Susan Boyle, I think Susan Boyle sounds particularly strong, actually. I think it's more than listenable. For me, it's not one of those charity singles that you download and never play again, Hello, Lad Baby. I'm not sure it actually raised very much money as an overall percentage of the billions that were raised in aid for Haiti. But then again, perhaps the fundraising wasn't restricted to direct sales of the song. It might also have prodded people to make their own direct donations as well for larger sums of money. I'm sure that happens. And look, this is a stellar cast, right? Most of these all-star charity singles find themselves having to dip into the B-list or even the C-list. This crew are genuinely all major stars, or at least they were at the time Joe McKeldry had just won X Factor. Come on. So this has more than the usual sense of classiness about it, I would contend. Also, did you notice Mariah Carey, she's actually crying in the video, that's two videos in this episode where the singer is crying. I am choosing not to be cynical about this. She's crying. She is crying. She's crying because nobody's paid her for doing it, is why she's crying. Conspiracy theorist. Try proving she wasn't. <laughs> yeah, all right. Does it have artistic staying power? No, of course it doesn't. I'd forgotten all about it. I won't be playing it again. But it did the job it was assigned to do at the time fair play for doing that i think that is extremely fair on it that is about as nice as you could be about that record i think well you know it's nice to be nice speechless i'm (laughs) speechless we'll find out who's soon enough which way our listeners will divide on this let's do some voting i will start with my own vote if i may so most bad and hated. I don't hate any of these, but my minus one point is going to go to Anthony Newley from the 60s because it is such just such a drippy, sappy, say-nothing tautology of a song. Into the mech zone, helping Haiti and Oasis. 
Third position goes to Edison Lighthouse. They get the one point. I was genuinely going to give the three points to Kenny Rogers for, for all of last week. But having found that stuff out about the beef with the Gatlin brothers, oh, no. So it drops. Two points go to Kenny Rogers. And although it stopped moving me a long time ago, it's still great. Three points go to Sinead O'Connor from the 1990s. Right. I would give minus one to almost all of this, given the choice. Um, you know, it's a toss-up between two. I've almost convinced myself by the crassness of that Haiti thing, but I think I am going to give it to Oasis, just because of all these songs, that's the one I would turn off if it came on. I could maybe stomach the Haiti thing if I didn't have to watch it. If I just heard it, I could maybe let it go. So Oasis minus one. I'll put Haiti and Sinead O'Connor in the mat. I'm going to put Anthony Newley third. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Of all of these songs, that is the one that if it came on, I would not turn it off. Second, the 70s. I like that. It's a good pop song. I am, sorry, going to go for Coward of the County. I'm I'm, I'm on the Kenny Rogers train. I tell you, I'm driving the Kenny Rogers. Without Kenny <laughs> Rogers, we wouldn't have Taylor Swift. He kicked the door down between country and pop music to allow... Shania Twain and Taylor Swift to walk through, in my opinion. So, go, go, Kenny Rogers. All right, then, Trev. Any curveballs to throw? We've had challenging weeks before, and I actually think this is challenging for a good reason. We've had challenging weeks because everything was so beige. I think there's two songs here that really stand out by quite a way for me that I really liked, and I'm struggling to go first and second with them. And then I am struggling to pick one for third. I'm kind of struggling to pick one that I dislike as well. I'm just going first, Oasis. It could have very easily been Love Grows. That's my second choice. Put cigarette paper between them. It's not Oasis's best, not by any long stretch. Nevertheless, I did find myself belting it out. It's easy, but that's okay. Love Grows, I think, is really catchy and is good fun. Again, it's not particularly challenging. For third place, I am going Everybody Hurts because it is such a very, very good song. The version with the production, the actual single, sonically, it sounds, well, you can't hear as much of the overperformance on it if you block out the video from your mind. So, yeah, I'm, I'm relatively comfortable with that being there. And then, sadly, in last place, I'm going Kenny, which does make me sad. I just wanted more from it. I wanted it to be darker. I wanted it to go one way or the other, and I kind of just felt it went up the middle a bit too much for me. Kenny Rogers has made an entire career of going straight down the middle. That's why he's sold so many records. It's just all straight down the middle. Yep. But I, I think when you've got such a dark subject matter, I wanted more of the man in black and not kindly Santa. As a revenge murder ballad goes, can we add it to the extras? I would also point in the direction of Tony Christie's I Did What I Did for Maria, which is the first thing I thought of when I heard this song, because there's a man who's about to be executed for a revenge uh, killing as well. Um, Well, Johnny Cash is the one where I shot a man in Reno. That's not revenge murder. That's just a guy killing someone just for hell of it. It's just psychopathy. Yeah, but that's got the darkness to it. You know, Johnny Cash's delivery does that. Uh, But anyway. Yeah. Interesting set of results because they're rather in line with the current state of our master scoreboard, with one exception. So in sixth place is Anthony Newley from the 60s. But then after that, the decades stack up in chronological order. So fifth place, Helping Haiti. Fourth place, Oasis. Third place, Sinead O'Connor. Second place, Kenny Rogers. First place, 
Edison Lighthouse. Wasn't expecting any of that. And that was a very varied set of votes, which leads me to think we're going to get a very, very mixed bag from our listeners this time. I do think the 60s are in trouble. This could be the week that the 60s finally gets knocked off the top. And Anthony Newley is last in our voting. So who knows? It's an easier week for the 70s. I think Sinead's going to do better than she's done here. Sinead's only come third with us. I think she's got a stronger chance with the Witch Decade Massive. But who knows? Really? Who knows? It's wide open. Okay, I should tell you how to vote. Right, various ways. On Twitter, we are at Witch Decade Tops. Or you can email us, tops at gmail.com. Facebook, search for Witch Decade is Tops Pops. You'll find us. Leave us a comment or drop us a private message, which some people seem to prefer to do. You need to specify your first, second and third favourites in descending order of preference, plus your most bad and hated. Do please attach any supporting comments and we'll read some of them out in our next results bulletin. You have until 6pm UK time on Wednesday, the 1st of March. I'm now going to reveal to these two what we've got coming up for episode nine. But this is where we all bid you goodbye. Shall we say goodbye all together? One, two, three. Goodbye, goodbye children. Which decade is Tops for Pops?